Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I was having a chat the other day with my longtime colleague and friend, our chief anchor here at ABC News, George Stephanopoulos, who had just come back from his holiday break. And one of the books he read and really enjoyed on that break was called Advice Not Given by Dr. Mark Epstein. I was really excited to hear that because I love that book and I love the guy who wrote it even more. Dr. Mark is uh, a repeat guest on this podcast. We don't do that often, but uh, he, he he absolutely warrants it. If you read 10% Happier, you know a little bit about Mark. I read about him quite a bit in, in that book. He wrote a, a, what was, I think, the first book I ever read on meditation and um, on Buddhism called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, which was a gift from my wife. And this is an overused phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway because it happens to be apt in this case, changed my life. And I called him up and essentially asked him if he would be my friend. And that began a years-long set of conversations that uh, really um, had a big effect on my mind and on my life. And I wrote about them extensively in 10% Happier. And uh, so he's out with a new book, uh, which is just out in paperback. It's called Advice Not Given. And like his, like all of his books, it, this one's fantastic. It's a little bit more personal he talks a lot. He takes you into the room as he does therapy. He is uh, uh, Dr. Mark is a uh, psychiatrist who has a private practice here in New York City and uh, is also a longtime practicing Buddhist. In fact, he got into Buddhism before he got went to med school and and became a, a shrink. Um, but he really, in this book, advice not given, takes you into the the room as he as he's doing therapy. He talks a lot about why he held back from talking about Buddhism and meditation. Uh, with his patients for a long time, talks about mistakes he's made in therapy, talks about the death of his father, the nature of his own inner critic, um, ways for all of us to manage our egos, the voices, the voice in our heads, talks a lot about uh, the role that Buddhism has played personally in his life. And he's got some criticisms of the modern mindfulness movement, which uh, I happen to share. So a lot there with Mark. And, I, you know, I just I think this will come through in the interview, but I, I give him and his work the heartiest of endorsements. If you like this podcast and maybe if you like the 10% Happier app or any of the books that I've written, he is in many ways the cynic, one of, if not the sort of most important causes and conditions for all of this to come about. Because uh, had I not met him, I, I don't think I would have gotten as deeply into it meditation and Buddhism as I've subsequently become. In fact, I ran into Mark recently at the end of, I was in the last day of a meditation retreat up in central Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Society. And Mark was on like the first or second day of his. And I ran into him. I was taking a walk and he was taking a walk as we sort of broke the rules and I got a hug and we were chatting for just a quick second. And I I mentioned to him, you know, I, I wouldn't be here. I can't imagine a situation in which I would have ended up on a meditation retreat, me, given my history and proclivities, were it not for his books and his friendships. So, yeah, he's a, a big figure in my life, and uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. So that's coming up. First, a few items of business. 
One is just a reminder, the voicemails are now at the end of the show. We started that last week. This is going to be the way we're going to do it going forward. And also, as uh, I know I've been promising this for a while, but we'll get to it pretty soon. In the future, it won't just be me answering the questions, but this week you're stuck with me. Also, a couple new things in the 10% Happier app. Two new meditations up there, one from Oren Sofer, which is about falling asleep. Oren, one of our most popular teachers. Also, from the uh, one of the newer additions to the app, Jessica Mori, who is phenomenal. Uh, she's got one, uh, a new one on there called Waking Up. And I do want to give a big shout-out to a woman who plays a big role in producing this show, Tiffany Omahundro. She does a lot of work editing this show and getting it into – into shape. And uh, so all of us here in the New York office deeply appreciate her work. And she had a baby last week. So I want to give a big shout out to her and a congratulations to her and her family. Uh, A couple of notes on Mark before we get into this. Um, So he is, as I said before, he's a psychiatrist in private practice here in New York City. He's written a number of books, including Thoughts Without a Thinker, the aforementioned Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, Open to Desire, these are really beautiful books. And the latest, which is, as I said, just out in paperback, is called Advice Not Given. I do want to mention that this was recorded a while ago. Um, and we held it for a minute. So you you will hear a reference in the present tense to Arizona Senator John McCain, uh, who has, uh, of course, unfortunately passed since then. But uh, So don't let that be too jarring. That's just a reflection of the fact that this was taped a little while ago. All right, enough of my raving on and on about Mark. You can fall in love with him for yourself here. And we do not go too much into his personal biography the way I often do with people sort of walking through their lives. If you're interested in that, go back and check out his first interview with us. But there's a lot here, a lot here. So here we go. Here's Mark Epstein. Nice to see you. Wonderful. You've got your summer haircut? Yep, just got it. <laughs> you did. You just got it? It looks good. Yeah, looks last good. week. Yeah. Uh, so the new book, um, it felt I, – I was saying to you before we started rolling, I, I actually think it – I'm hesitant to say it's my favorite of your books because I loved all of the books. I want you to love this one more. But I kind of do love uh-huh. this one more. It feels more personal to me. Am I right about that? I try to write it in a spoken voice. And, you know, I wanted it to be coming really from me, not from my mind if that makes sense. So, uh, but we would unpack that though. Um, it's not written in a dense or semi dense conceptual way where I'm trying to figure out concepts. It's written, uh, it's written from an experiential place that I'm just trying to communicate the way I would if I was talking out loud. It, it has always felt to me a little bit knowing you personally and then being an avid reader of your books, that as your authorial voice has held something back. Uh-huh. And I think in this book, I didn't feel that way. Good. Well, even knowing me personally, you might feel like my personal voice is holding something well, back. But At times. <laughs> at times, but then sometimes it all comes rushing out. Yes. That's why I'm a shrink. <laughs> <laughs> it works. But so you did you was that a was that a decision on your part? Like, OK, yeah. look, I'm going to I'm going to kind of let it go on this one. Well, I didn't know what the book was going to be when I started writing it. I started really? writing it a couple of years before it took shape. And I started writing it by 
you know, I only write one day a week, and I didn't know what my subject material was going to be. So I would just come um, to my desk on that one day and try to write something real about what had happened in the office or about what had happened in my life or what had happened on retreat or what I was thinking about or what I was feeling. I tried to, you know, write a page. Um, and I accumulated uh, a, a lot of material some of which went into the book. I have a lot of other bits and pieces that didn't make it into the book. But um, somewhere down the line, I got the idea uh, for the title, uh, Advice Not Given. I was on a meditation retreat, and uh, I was thinking about my father, who had passed away a couple of years before. Uh, and then I was thinking about my patients, who I was um, not – not always so forthcoming with, as you have already indicated, about my uh, my Buddhist leanings. And then the phrase advice not given sort of came down into my mind. And I thought, oh, that's a good title for the book. Yeah. Um, and I had a different subtitle for a, for a while. But uh, And then some, uh, some time later, I, I thought, oh, the Eightfold Path, that could work as a structuring device. You now you have to explain what the Eightfold Path is. The Eightfold Path is a structuring device um, <laughs> that the Buddha used in his Fourth Noble Truth to explain uh, the, both the path into nirvana, enlightenment, awakening, and the path out of nirvana, enlightenment, awakening. Because his Four Noble Truths, not to get lost in this, but... The first truth is like the problem or the disease, the illness, which is unsatisfactoriness or dukkha or suffering. The second truth is the cause of the disease, uh, which is clinging or craving or thirst or ego or attachment or, you know, uh, various words have been put on it. The third truth is there's a cure, which is enlightenment or nirvana or blowing out the craving or awakening. And the fourth truth is the Eightfold Path. So why does the fourth truth, you know, come after the third truth? Why the way to the release? Why is it given afterwards? Because just getting a glimmer of awakening, I think, doesn't necessarily cure you of everything. You have to use that to get a handle on yourself in a continuous way. So the Eightfold Path is not just about meditation. Only three-eighths of it is about meditation. The other uh, five-eighths are about uh, your conceptual understanding of what's real and what's important in life. Those are the first two. And the next three are like ethical, behavioral kinds of things, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Um, so I go into a whole thing about why right, does right imply wrong, I don't think so. The Buddha, the word, the word the Buddha used wasn't right like we say right and wrong, was more like right like if something's crooked, I'm going to write it, you know, mm. balanced. Um, and some people use realistic or now I'm even thinking real, you know, like the point of all this is to be more real. Mm. Um, so anyway, we could go on about that. But uh, uh, it came to me that I could structure the book using the Eightfold Path as eight chapters uh, and then I had to fit all the little bits that I'd been writing, you know, oh, which ones would go well with right speech and which ones would go well with right motivation and which ones would go well with right mindfulness. And then I had to write, you know, things that made more sense <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that explained a little bit about I was trying to reinterpret uh, those, those um, 
uh, different aspects of the Eightfold Path instead of the classical one of right speech, meaning don't gossip and don't say nasty things about someone, to think about it more as uh, right speech could be how we talk to ourselves. So what you sometimes call the inner critic, you know, right speech is like not putting yourself down all the time or not putting down your parents all the time in your mind or your wife or your husband or your children or, you know, how you talk to yourself really matters. So that that kind of reinterpretation of things. Why do you think you held back your Buddhistic leanings from your <laughs> from your patients? Well, I didn't want to be a... Um, you know, like a Christian uh, uh, therapist or a Jewish therapist. I mean, imagine if it was like if you went to a therapist and they were laying a, a Kabbalistic thing on you or, a, uh, you know, telling you to pray or whatever. I think it's very so, different. Uh, I know you think it's very different, but uh, but you didn't always think it was very different. That's right. There would have been a time when you would have been the last thing you would have right. you would have let yourself do, you know. Um, Had I, I just, I should have met you earlier. You did meet me earlier. No, I mean much earlier. Well, you you might have seen me and not recognized well, me earlier. Well, that's right. You know? That's right. Um, but anyway, I, I would have been in hiding. So, um, <laughs> uh, so I really wanted to be a therapist. You know, I I was um, uh, deep into Buddhism before turning towards uh, a career as a psychiatrist. So I had that in me. Yeah, you found Buddhism really in college. In college, right? 18, 19, 20 years old. So I had a good seven years or so uh, of that was really my primary thing. And then I, I um, took the pre-med courses that I didn't take in college and went to medical school with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist. I, was, I think there were two people in my uh, medical school class out of 100 and however many who wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, but I had that agenda. And I really wanted to learn how to do that right, you, you know, uh, right therapy, uh, in a, a way that was right for me. And uh, a lot of that is not giving advice, you know, uh, advice not given. It's not leading with what the therapist thinks uh, the person should do, because often the person who's in therapy doesn't even quite understand for a long time why they're in therapy, what's really causing the anxiety that brought them or what the real issue is. Or sometimes people who were sexually molested when they were young uh, don't want to talk about it, don't even really remember it for a while. You know, So a therapist has to be patient and a therapist has to wait and a therapist has to make space. And that all seemed very Buddhist to me. I learned how to do that for myself through meditation. And that seemed very natural as a therapist. So instructing my patients in the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or how to be mindful, that seemed unnecessary. I was more interested in creating an environment for them in which they could um, say whatever they were experiencing without feeling shame or without uh, um, uh, being embarrassed, you know. Um, so that's a lot, you know, that's a beautiful thing if you, if one can make that happen for somebody. So that was primarily my focus. Um, and then 
after I started writing books and so on, people would come specifically because they thought, oh, maybe I had some other expertise. You know, being a Buddhist therapist gave me a leg up in some way. And some people asked specifically about where to where to go on retreat, where, who the good teachers were, how to learn to meditate. And I would often help guide them and maybe talk a little bit uh, uh, about it, but mostly introduce them to people who could be that for them. And then other people started coming who'd had a lot of meditative experience but still really needed therapy help. And with those people, I could engage more in like Dharma conversations to try to get at where they were misunderstanding, in my view, uh, various aspects of the Buddhist path and using it defensively mm. to hide from, you know, more areas in themselves that made them uncomfortable. Sometimes that's referred to as spiritual bypass. I think that's uh, um, one one phrase that's been put on it. Yeah, spiritual bypass. Spiritual materialism would be another one or um, – the whole thing in Buddhism about the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering is desire, you know. So a lot of people who uh, um, had not been able to stamp out their desire but felt like that was the point, you know, would end up in therapy and need some encouragement to, you know, like it's okay to reach out to other people sometimes, you know. Do you feel looking back now that you should have shared more of your – what you know about Buddhism and meditation? Um, I sort of think like, you know, this is more the right time. Like I'm more, uh, I'm more steady in my work and more confident about, uh, what I can do for someone in therapy and that I can also, uh, uh, talk about Buddhism and not interfere with the therapy uh, and that the two can work together in a way that I've always written about that they could work together. But now I think I'm a little more uh, interested in uh, act actualizing that for people. So you do – now you will bring it up in a way that you wouldn't have – Sometimes. Some, sometimes I will now, yeah. What What's the variable? Uh, where the person is at. I mean I, I think I'm still taking my, my major cues from – uh, from the person, what they might need, but uh, I'll I'll float it for people. You know, if they're uh, waking up at night because they're anxious, you know, like that's a good time. Actually, the middle of the night to sit yourself up and do a little meditation, um, or if they're. I mean, the more interesting thing is where to really see where people are holding on in a clinging kind of way, you know, to be able to, as a therapist, point that out to them kind of as it's happening in the office. Uh, that feels like really putting the Buddhist psychology into practice because clinging, when you see it clearly, liberates itself. You know, that's the whole... Uh, theory in meditation uh, that once you see it clearly, so that there's something in the person that wants to be free of it, even while instinctively we're all doing it. Well, I think that's worth exploring because Good. I think that that that'll be 
that'll sound like it's in the neighborhood of truth to people, but pe- people may need some help figuring out exactly how that works. Yeah, I'll throw some a personal example out. You'll tell me if I'm okay saying describing what you're describing. But for me, uh, one of the big things that I deal with in meditation is: Am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. You know, am I, am I a terrible meditator? I think it's a pretty common issue for meditators, and. There's one really powerful way to deal with it, which is to make a nice little mental note of doubt. Mm-hmm. Not doubt in the positive sense, like I'm a journalist, so it's nice to be skeptical. I mean doubt in the negative, in the pejorative, like the quicksand, completely stifling force of self-questioning and self-laceration. Mm-hmm. And when I see, oh yeah, no, I'm just getting wrapped up in this story, this endless, somebody recently used the term that I like, a term that I like, think hole. Mm-hmm. A think hole of doubt. If I just say to myself, "Oh, this this is just doubt," yeah. Sometimes it just I'm liberated from the doubt just in the seeing of it. So does that come close to describing what you're describing? Well, that that approach that approaches it. I think um, you and I have both been trained by Joseph Goldstein who's you know, one of the great American teachers of Vipassana insight meditation. And the traditional Buddhist psychology that comes along with the way Joseph teaches says there are five hindrances that arise when you try to concentrate the mind. You know, greed, hatred, uh, worry and agitation, sloth and torpor, and doubt. So he's taught you you know, when that kind of loop of uh, I'm not doing this right, he's taught you to say that's doubt, you know, and to in saying that to back off of the involvement with the story that you're telling yourself. So um, so that's one way to work with it. And it does work just like you're saying when you when you back off from it, it it, you know, uh, dissolves often, except it comes back in the next uh, yes. uh, five minutes, yes. you know. But that, so what I'm I'm saying something uh, quite similar, but I'm trying to look at the the way that you're criticizing yourself, you know, because that's because I bet you're doing something similar, not just in meditation. You know, that's bring meditation is bringing out some kind of chronic ego thing in you, you know, that is a kind of clinging, you know, you're clinging. What what is it that you're clinging to there? You know, it's a uh, a notion of yourself as, you know, imperfect or as you're a slacker in some way or you just can't quite get it right, you know, is it like from toilet training at time, you know, where, you, you know, it, you were, back to toilet it doesn't always, no, no, but, you know, you're, you're not doing it right, you're messing up, you know, it could be a, it could go back to um, uh, something more edible, meaning more genital, meaning, you know, like, uh, you can't do it right, you know, um, but there's some element of clinging there, that if you focus your mindfulness, if you focus your attention on the whatever the uh, feeling tone is that's going into, I'm not doing this right, uh, it might give you another way to 
let the clinging dissolve. You know, it's just like changing the focus a little bit, where the ego, the, the ego's machinations, you know, the, the ego's instinctive habits uh, themselves become the object of mindfulness. Uh, um, and that, that, I think, is leading towards uh, the insight practices, you know, where we start to make the self, whatever the self might be, uh, but we we start looking for how we actually experience the self in our own experience. In, you know, I'm using experience twice, but how how we actually um, uh, know or don't know the self from the inside, and that becomes really interesting, m- more interesting than just looking at the hindrances. Yeah, but I to me that the two are. They're totally linked. Yes, absolutely. They're linked. totally linked. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's in the moment you're seeing doubt, but you can broaden the focus to look at the habitual storylines that are these programs that are tapes that are running all the time. Well, you can look at yourself. Like like that's what I'm saying. Like, yes, no, like no, no, that's can, the next level. Is uh-huh. then you're or, just looking at the whole system of like who mm-hmm. is this who's telling the story who's who's receiving but the story. But without Without questioning it right away, like, who is it? Who is it? Like, you have to find, like, it's you. Yeah. You know, you're you're in there doing that. Yes. So where, where are you? You know, like, really find it. Really, really, like, really try to find it. The, the, the issue of, like, finding the self, the self at all. Yeah. Could sound, I would imagine, to some people as a little, I don't know. Loony. Or abstruse, esoteric, uh-huh. you know. Why is it important to... to to examine the self, I don't even. Some people, may, may, many people, may not even have any idea what you even are talking about when you talk about the self. Uh, well, something's running us, and it's not always the healthiest version of who we could be. Uh, but we can't uh, unmake it if we don't see it clearly. Unmake it. Unmake it. Is it possible mm-hmm. to unmake the self? I don't know. Uh, it's possible to doubt uh, uh, oneself a little more. To to use doubt in a good way, you know. Right, right, right. It's possible to become less sure that you have to be the person who's always questioning: Are you doing it right? You know. So, how would one even begin to look at the self? Uh, come to therapy. So you, this is not something that can be done just in meditation. I think. It, I think. It, of course, it can be done just in meditation, um, but I think it's very easy not to do it in meditation. It's very, it's very easy to just spend your whole life in meditation doing something else. What would that be? Um, you know, uh, getting concentrated on your breath. Yeah, being mindful. You know, lifting, moving, placing. You, as you walk, as you walk, yeah, chewing, but, eating the raisins, right. So all the traditional mindfulness stuff, yeah. but you're not necessarily looking at the operating system, exactly, or whatever the. I don't even mean the operating. You're not necessarily uh, getting down to uh, something more real in yourself. One of your arguments is that meditation isn't going to. F- fix all of your problems that other things, namely psychotherapy, are also really important. 
My psychotherapy stick. might not fix all of your problems either. But well, you also yeah. argued that in yeah. previous books. You, yeah. you had a quote in one of your earlier books, and I don't know if it's from you or somebody else, that psychotherapy can bring you understanding without relief. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know. I know. We're poor indeed if we are only sane. That, that's that's from Winnicott. That's one I remember. So, but but you have a little bit of a contrarian streak in you about the current mindfulness revolution, that it's not the only thing, the only modality we should be reaching for. Can you just say more about that? Because I feel like it will build upon the discussion we've been having. Well, uh, um, in the in the Buddhist way of thinking, according to Buddhist psychology and so on, mindfulness is an introductory practice. It, you know, it's like, it's like the way into examining the self. Um, so to, to take mindfulness uh, away from that context and uh, present it here in the West as a complete thing in and of itself it seems to me clearly like we're shortchanging people. Um, so I'm all for, like I've been involved in this from you know the beginning of mindfulness coming into uh, a Western psychology. I'm all for it. It's been, it's enormously helpful for lots and lots of people. But the tendency is to, you know, like with Prozac, when Prozac came, everyone wanted to take Prozac uh, because they thought, oh, this is the thing, this is the magic thing that's going to make me feel better. And some people, Prozac really worked for them, you know, like nothing else ever ever had before. And then for lots of people, Prozac did nothing, just gave them side effects or did nothing at all. So the hunger for like the one thing that's going to, you know, fix everything um, – leads a lot of people to mindfulness because it's new and there's a lot of um, it has a lot of charisma for the moment um, and inevitably people are going to be disappointed because it can't do you know to, to try to overwork it is just going to uh, you know be frustrating for for lots of people so I, I'm foreseeing that coming which is why I'm you know cautious about um, there, there's a real tendency in my field, the field of psychotherapy, for uh, young therapists in training to want to learn to be a mindfulness-based therapist. And that they come into it wanting to do that. They spend their graduate school learning to do that. And, uh, and they never learn anything from the whole tradition of psychodynamic psychotherapy. Like that's just like over with. So then they're going to be dealing with people in, in intense interpersonal situations uh, and they're not going to have the wisdom of psychotherapy to turn to to help um, to help deal with these the, you know more intense kinds of uh, uh, um, disturbances that that healthy people have. You know, so I could really see as you're I could really hear as you're speaking that that what a big influence you've had on me because I knew you way right at the beginning of my meditation career, mm-hmm. and I think. That's inevitably what led me to take the sort of 10% happier mm-hmm. route. Um, and also, you know, when people ask me, you know, I, I try to be very careful to say, like, I don't think I'm not a meditation um, supremacist, you know, that mm-hmm. I don't think it's the king of all modalities. I think you, we know there are a bunch of things that work when it comes to mental well-being. And they include medication, psychotherapy, getting enough sleep, exercise, positive relationships, meaningful work diet, 
And so we should be reaching for all these things. It seems to me uh, that's what you're saying, but it, 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 is, is there more to it than that? Um, well, probably there's more to it than that, but, but I'm definitely saying that. I, I mean, the, I, I spent a little bit of time in India uh, around the Dalai Lama and around the, the Tibetan community in, in exile and worked with the, um, the physician who was the Dalai Lama's physician and asked a lot of questions about, you know, like, was there the same kind of emotional suffering in their community as, as there is in ours? And there is. And, um, but they don't have psychotherapy. They don't have psychotherapy. They didn't have much medication. They're like, you know, uh, people high up in the uh, in the community who are uh, are bipolar. You know, they have manic depressive illness, just like we have manic depressive illness. That's out of control. You know, I've had because I'm a psychiatrist, and the people within the various Buddhist communities trust me. I've had. Uh, um, uh, Zen teachers, meditation teachers of all stripes who, you know, very accomplished but are still suffering from, you know, depression, anxiety, addiction, uh, interpersonal issues, you you know, uh, uh, sexual issues, all – I mean, every – people just are who they are. Uh, And that's sort of the beautiful thing about Buddhism is it says just work with yourself just as you are, you know, like the more real you can be about what your struggles are, uh, the more useful this is all going to be. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. One of the many things that I liked about your book is really the feeling of being brought into the room. You've done that in other books. but Try to, yeah. But I got in this book a sense of the rapidity of the back and forth, the complexity, the sort of multidimensional chess game you are playing yeah. while treating patients. 
Can you just say uh, some more about that? Yeah, well, um, there, there's a thing that happened that I didn't put into this book, but that was sort of like the, the, the uh, prelude to this book that uh, I think would help to answer your question, which, which was my, my father, who, like your father, uh, was a physician in Boston and a, a scientist and a researcher and a clinician. Um, my father got uh, brain cancer uh, at the age of 84 on the silent part of his brain, so n- on the non-dominant part of his brain. So he was working, seeing patients, doing research, until he got lost one day driving home from the Beth Israel Hospital to my parents' house in Brookline, you know, a 10-minute drive that he'd taken for 30 years, got lost. That's how they found the tumor. Um, and by the time they found it, it, it had extended, uh, so they couldn't really do anything about it. And it was the same kind of malignant tumor that John McCain has mm. and that Ted Kennedy died from, you know. And my father, being a uh, uh, the physician that he was, knew the prognosis, uh, knew he only had a short time to live, um, as did I. And I had never talked to him. He's in, like my patients, but but more so. Uh, I knew he wasn't interested in any of the spiritual stuff. An- another way in which he's like my father. Another way in which he is, yes. Uh, and I understood. He was very proud of uh, my writing, and he had all my books on a special shelf in his office. Unread. You know? I think he read. A, <laughs> okay. I think he read some of them, um, <laughs> but we never talked about the the meat of it. You know, it's so uh, funny. This is exactly what's going on with my dad. I think it's not unusual, you, you, uh, but uh, I didn't want to make him uncomfortable. And yeah, I had gone my way, and we had worked our stuff out, and you know that was all fine. But I remember uh, sitting in my office, which is here in New York, realizing my father was going to die soon and that we had never talked about what maybe I understood from the Buddhist world about what could help in the process of dying. So this is coming into like the complexity of the kinds of conversations that one can have as a therapist or as a son or as a friend or, you know, it's not that different. Um, so I decided I would call my father on the phone and try to talk to him, uh, which I did. And he picked up. He was at home, and he was very receptive. And I said, you know, we've never talked about any of this, but uh, but maybe it would be helpful, you know, as you go into this uh, new thing uh, for you to know what uh, what they say and what, what I sort of believe. Uh, and I wanted to talk to him in like sort of in the non – Uh, spiritual language, just in day-to-day language. So I said something like, you know the feeling that uh, that you've always had uh, deep inside about who you are, that when you were 20 or 40 or 60 or 80, it doesn't seem to have changed very much. Like if you close your eyes, you're just, you're still you. Um, But if you try to find that feeling, if you try to put your finger on it, it's sort of invisible. It's kind of transparent, but yet you know it's there. You know you're not like another person when you, you know. I said what the Buddhists seem to say is that uh, if you learn how to relax your mind into that feeling of who you've always been, that you can ride that feeling out when you die, when the body starts to fall away and everything, you know, who you think you are is no longer operative and so on. That's still there. Um, and my father listened and he was very nice and he was like, okay, darling, I'll try, you know. Um, but that, I've faced that 
I've had those kinds of conversations, you know, different with everybody, but in my office because sooner or later, everybody goes through, you know, really intense uh, things like this. You know, someone comes in at the age of 31, newly newly discovered that they have the breast cancer gene, you know, uh, and they have to go uh, in in three weeks for a double mastectomy, you know, or um, as someone comes whose uh, a child has been run over, uh, you know, crossing the street, you know, like like random things mm. that, uh, in the midst of people coming just because they're you know uh, trying to make their marriage work better, but uh, so trying to figure out what kind of language to use to give people another perspective on what they're going through uh, is, I think, the deeper challenge of bringing these two worlds together. Is is this work exhausting or invigorating or both? Um, it's not that exhausting. Um, it's it's often invigorating. Uh, the The only time... The only time that it's really tiring is if uh, some if I'm with someone and they're not really talking to me about uh, why they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're not being real enough in some way, filibustering, you, you just or or so defensive around. You know, they just really can't yet. Um, so that that's the most challenging. Do I you, find. Do you find that you've made big mistakes? Um. I've made I've certainly made some mistakes. I talk about one of them in the at the beginning of the book of being too aggressive uh, with a young man who came to see me uh, coming off of a meditation retreat where his mind started to unwind uh, and he was a little crazy I thought. Um oh, That's right I remember. And that. I and I but I was meeting him for the first time. Uh, and I wanted to help him, and I felt like how something wasn't quite right. But I laid into him too quickly about what might be wrong, like you might be bipolar, maybe we need to give you medicine, and I scared him. And his mother called me the next day, you know, sort of uh, criticizing me for scaring him. And how could I, you know, I only met him once. What was I? What was I thinking? And she was totally right. Um, and I, I used that example in the book to talk about why a therapist has to be careful uh, uh, with his or her expertise or his or her knowledge, because often you can use that knowledge in a in a um, uh, insensitive way, if not a hurtful way. You you open the book with a really effective piece of writing about the ego. Uh huh. Can you can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Uh, ego is the one affliction we all share, um, and in our struggle to be bigger, better, stronger, more uh, this and that, we uh, undermine ourselves uh, uh, relentlessly, so that we're left with a feeling of being, uh, you, you know, uh, unworthy, not good enough, insufficient. So uh, the ego uh, has us under its sway, uh, and we can't just get rid of the ego because to do that would leave us psychotic uh, or helpless. We need our egos. And by ego, you mean thinking mind? 
uh, well, the ego, uh, the ego comes out of the intellect. So it's a product of the thinking mind. Uh, my my latest thought on it is it sort of starts to come when we're two or three years old, and there's enough self consciousness to for the young uh, person to realize that they're kind of alone in here. You know, they're like a little person, and they're and they're really like sort of alone. And w- who's going to protect me? You, you know, and so the thinking mind, the intellect, uh, develops necessarily. Uh, what we call the ego, which which helps us regulate ourselves, it helps mediate uh, the outer demands, you know, of the parents and the schools and the older brother and so on, mm. with the inner need for uh, food and holding and affection and uh, so the ego, it's sort of like the executive function, the way we talk about it now. Uh, it it helps to regulate or mediate uh, experience. Uh, but uh, we start to we, well, we start to think we are it. You, you know, like we don't. We shouldn't get rid of it. We need we need all that the ego can do for us. But um, uh, we uh, tend to cleave to it exclusively. You, you know that I think that first book of mine that you read, uh, "Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart," that was another way of talking about the same thing. That there are. Uh, very important experiences in life that Winnicott, my um, uh, uh, the 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 person I always turn to when I when I'm uh, looking for uh, inspiration, uh, a British British uh, psychoanalyst, uh, he gave it the name of unintegration. You know, different from disintegration. But there are times of going to sleep, having sex, listening to music, watching a movie. Um, uh, riding a bicycle at Soul Cycle, there there are times when you don't need your ego to be in charge, and uh, uh, instead you are letting go in a certain way and uh, expanding. You know, letting the boundaries down. Uh, Winnicott talked about play. That little children, uh, in their play, are in a kind of state of unintegration if they feel safe enough. If the parents are there but not too much there you know if they're in the next room and you know they're there then you can like play with the little men on the carpet or or whatever and and that's a that sense of play in some way i think is what we're returning to in meditation we're we're giving ourselves that unstructured time to just let the mind unfurl and uh, uh out of that we're reducing the clinging to the ego you know, we still need it when we have to go to school the next day or go to work or take out the garbage or drive the car. We still need it and we can find it again, but we don't need it all the time. It sounds like we just need – we don't need to get rid of the ego. We need to have little vacations. Or we need to turn it from master to servant. You know, there's there's different ways to talk about it. So little vacations but also an abiding – and a, uh, to create a relationship that's a little different um, in, on, in an, on an abiding basis. On an abiding basis. That's the, the internal shift. That's what I was trying to get to before when I was talking to you about making the, the sense of self the object of meditation. Another way to say that would be like changing your relationship to the ego. So instead of letting it, it's driving you when you're saying, I'm not doing it right, that's really your ego talking. 
you know, so if I can get you or if Joseph Goldstein can get you to look at that ego at the same way you're looking at the doubt, then, oh, then, then, then where are you? You know, then you're taking a little vacation from your ego right, right then in that moment. Let me, can I throw something at you a little mm-hmm. out of left field? Sure. We're approaching the end of our time, and I think th- I'm just putting myself in the position of the listener who will have been, as I have been, like really interested in everything you're saying, but may want us like some practical, something practical to do. Uh-huh. What if we close? Would you be willing to do a five minute guided meditation where you put some yeah, of this sure. into, like, show us how to do what you've been talking about? Uh, I could show you how to do something. Fine. Y- yeah. You, you can do no wrong in my eyes, uh-huh. just so you know that. Okay. Uh, and I mean that, actually. Um, but, but your game for that? Because we can edit this out if you don't want Yeah, to. well, sure, I would try. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, shall I start? Yeah. Um, you've got a clock right there. You can, you can do as, go as long as you want. Okay. Well, I would say first, uh, first pay attention to your physical posture. So let yourself settle into some kind of comfortable sitting position uh, where you're feeling your back relatively straight, uh, your feet on the ground or folded beneath you, but feeling all the places where your body is being supported, either by the floor or a cushion or the couch or the chair or the car, if you're listening, you know. So feeling the touch points of your body. And then there's a parallel mental posture that you want to give yourself. So you want to rest your mind in the body the way the body is resting in the chair. So just let your thinking mind, your aware mind, let it settle into itself as best you can. Just relax it. Relax the frown lines in your forehead. Relax the muscles in your shoulder. And let your listening awareness, particularly at your ear doors, what we call in Buddhist psychology the ear door, the portal where sound enters your mind. So, Open the ear doors so you're just listening not only to my voice but to all the ambient sounds that are coming around it, through it, to the side of it, alongside of it. So just make the meditation one where you're open, listening, hearing the sounds as they strike your eardrum. Noticing both the silences and the sounds, but not making a big distinction between them. Letting it just all pass through your awareness.
And then in the midst of that, where you're just, you're just, you know, the body held by the, by the chair, by the floor, the mind relaxed into the body, the sounds swirling about you or not in 360 degrees, the sense of your mind opening, your ears opening, your attention opening. If you start to hear yourself thinking, pay attention to that too. Just notice the kinds of thoughts, if you are having them. You don't have to go looking for them, but if thoughts come, just be curious about them. The same way you might with the sounds that you are already letting yourself hear. Like, oh, there's a dog barking, or there's a car horn, or there's the static from the radio. Have the same kind of posture, the same kind of mental posture towards your own thoughts. Don't push them away, but don't cling to them. And if they're, you know, random day-to-day, oh, what am I going to do next? When is this going to be over? Those kinds of thoughts, those are easy to just let pass through you. But if the thoughts have a little more something attached to them, a little more ego, we might say, if you can feel yourself gripping somewhere with the thought like Dan was talking earlier, I'm not doing this right. Or if some memory comes of somebody you're upset with. You know, some kind of thought where you really know you're you thinking it. Like it really matters to you. Pay particular importance particular attention to that feeling of it really mattering. Try to zero in on the really mattering. Like it really bothers you. And just try to hold the sense of that feeling without indulging it. You know, you don't have to do anything about it. You know, the way your mother talked to you, the way your partner didn't say goodbye. If any thoughts like that come, just observe them like anything else. But look for the mental tone, the feeling tone associated with it. And just let that percolate there in your awareness. And then after a bit, you can can come away from that and 
dwell once more just in the sounds around you or in the physical sense of your body in the chair, on the floor, on the couch, in the seat. And if if your eyes have been closed, you can open your eyes. If you're driving, hopefully you've had them open. And, uh, you know, forget about where we just were and come back to your uh, your regular life. That was great. And, and so in many ways you are pointing in that meditation toward what you've been discussing throughout this podcast, which is this feeling we've always had or since – since we kind of woke up into ourselves of of us of of the self yeah well i think i think it's confusing it's confusing even to me because i think there's two different feelings there uh the one that i was trying to show my father which is you know the feeling of who you've always been and who you might still be even when you're totally enlightened or into your next incarnation or whatever um that might be your buddha nature you, you know your consciousness uh, and then there's the feeling of like, oh, what's the matter with me? Uh, or how could she do that to me? Or, you know, I'm embarrassed to show this thing about me or I feel ashamed to be myself. And that's much more the ego feeling that, that I think we don't need. So I'm, I'm actually trying to show both uh, uh, until it's clear which is which. I unreservedly recommend your book, and I do that with all of your books, but equally with this one. So uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks, Dan. You're the best. Uh, really nice to be with I you. I owe you an, an enormous amount. So You've paid it back a long time ago. No. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank mm. you. All right. Big thanks to Mark Epstein. It's such a pleasure to see him every time I see him. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Check out his book. All right, let's do let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. This is Rob from Minnesota. Recently, in a podcast, you said that you cut your meditation time daily from two hours to one hour. I'm just wondering if you noticed any change in the beneficial effects. Uh, basically, I was wondering if there's any diminishing returns when it comes to meditation after a certain point. Thanks a lot. So I did. I, I For a long time, I did two hours a day of meditation, and I cut back to one for some reasons I've talked about on the show before, having to do with the fact that I had a 360 review. That's when you uh, – it's, it's really an unpleasant thing, but you recruit people from all areas of your life, personal, professional, uh, people who you work for, who work for you, who are your peers – and they give anonymous feedback to a reviewer, and then the, they, the reviewer writes up a report. Anyway, that report was pretty deeply humbling. And uh, one of the things that people say was that I was just pulled in too many directions and disengaged and cranky. And I made a bunch of uh, both short-term, medium-term, and also increasingly now working on some long-term changes as a consequence of that report. And one of the things I did pretty quickly was to cut back to one hour because – it frankly just made me more available at the office and at home and a little less crazy and stressed about getting everything in every day that I needed to do. So in in this, in this in a sense, that's been a real positive. And one of the things I did at what in because I still am really committed to a, 
a deep practice. And I think it's important. It's important to me personally, but it's also important. I think in in the work I'm trying to do that I know what I'm talking about when I go out and talk to people about meditation, uh, not only on this podcast, but it, in in my speeches and in the app and all this other stuff that I'm doing. So my the, what I've what I've done in cutting back to an hour is really committed to doing a long meditation every a long meditation retreat every year and i if close listeners may remember a conversation we had uh within the last 18 months with uh, Danny Goldman and Richie Davidson who wrote a book called uh, Altered Traits and it's all about the science uh the neuroscience uh around meditation one of the things they said was that there appears to be evidence that it's retreat time that is the most effective in terms of advancing your practice. So uh, I think I feel pretty good about this trade-off for a, a lot of reasons. And, you know, I think this the, the science suggests that retreat time is really important. And it's also something that you hear from teachers anyway. In terms of the effect on my daily practice going from two hours to one, I do notice that, uh, you know, now that I'm at one, the the meditation, it's the, the beneficial effect on the meditation is that I'm not – I. I think there was a lot of not so subtle or seen and and to a large extent also unseen concern in my head about getting it all in every day. And I think that had an effect on the quality of the practice. That being said, the detrimental part of this is that doing two hours a day really does up your ability to concentrate. And so I, I can feel that going down a little bit, but not in a way that's freaking me out. Um, so it's not some huge, crazy, horrible effects on the quality of, of my practice. So your question was, are there diminishing returns? You know, look, I'll just tell you from going on retreat, the, when you're doing intensive all-day-long practice, especially, you know, also sort of turning every all the interstitial moments uh, on retreat, you know, uh, walking around, eating, going to sleep, brushing your teeth, turning all of those into a mindfulness exercise as well. I, the, I, I, I have found that to be incredibly powerful. So in my experience – there doesn't there does not appear to be diminishing returns in terms of you know packing in a ton of meditation into a single day but in terms of your daily life practice i don't know i think that's probably here's my guess i think it's probably quite in, in the, that probably has to do with your specific mind so i suspect this is kind of an indiv- individual idiosyncratic thing and so I, I what i would say is if you're thinking about doing more or less meditation, just experiment. Really, that's what this is and, and what I've learned a lot about the thorny practice of forming uh, and breaking habits for humans. Experimentation is incredibly important. So for, so I experimented for three years with two hours a day. It wasn't working for a variety of reasons, um, and I cut back to one. But my life situation may change, and I could go back to two. I know people who do three. Uh, or maybe I'll go to a half hour. It really depends. And I think having a, a sort of a lack of rigidity, but but an overall commitment and ardor for the practice is, from what I can tell, seems to be the the real important bottom line. Thank you for that question. Really appreciate it, Rob. Uh, let's go to Belinda now from Chicago. My question is around any recommendations you have around how to identify a meditation coach. Um, if that's something that you would like to do just to get a little bit more a deeper or a different angle on your meditation practice to find a coach, are there certifications you should look for? Is it like an interview process where you kind of just see if you click or the vibe? Do you just 
recommend going off of just general reviews or or um, how to go about that. Also, how to approach the awkward conversation of payment and how do you compensate them for their time traditionally and just like in an example how to kind of approach that or, or throw that out there. Thanks very much. Love what you do. Bye. So I really appreciate that question. And it this is a this is an issue. Uh, there isn't a great system for finding a meditation teacher and uh, evaluating their credentials. It's this is a very young industry. It's obviously an ancient practice, but it's there. They really, we haven't set up great. There are all these different schools of meditation and uh, forms of meditation and different levels of. There is there is no go, good housekeeping seal of approval. And I don't know if there ever will be one. I know there's been a lot of talk in the meditation world of working toward in that direction, and certain schools um, have pretty clear levels of uh, you know of teachers. But you know, overall for a beginner, it's a kind of a murky situation. So let me say a few things that I hope hope will be helpful. One of them is um, this is not a person to person, face to face relationship, but. If you are a subscriber to the 10% Happier app, we do have these coaches. It is a, in my opinion, vastly underutilized feature of the app. But we find that, that the people who interact with our coaches, and you can do that right through the app, these coaches are longtime experienced meditators. They really know how to answer questions. They love doing it, love doing it. They're really committed to this work. They will engage with you as much as you would like and answer all the questions you you have and so I really do recommend that. That's not a that's not the same thing as having a face to face relationship with a teacher, but it's a really good step in the right direction. The uh, in t- if you live in a city where there are meditation teachers, many major cities now have either Buddhist centers or secular uh, drop in places. Like in New York City, there's Mindful M N D F L, uh, which has a, they have three. Uh, places in New York City where you can go uh, learn meditation. We also in New York City have the New York Insight Meditation Center and other places. Um, and and this is true in a lot of major cities around the country. If you live in a city where you're privileged to have teachers, what I would recommend is going to a bunch of classes, seeing who you click with, asking questions in the group Q&A time at the end of a class if they have it, and really getting a sense, is this somebody who you think you can learn from? And do they seem like they really know what they're talking about? Do they talk about the practice in a way that resonates with you? One uh, yardstick for me is do they take themselves seriously or not? I find that um, that my favorite teachers uh, really don't take themselves too seriously. They take the practice really seriously. They take you and your welfare really seriously. But they're not uh, – they don't have a guru complex. The other thing is there have been uh, – uh, this is not happening – this is not an epidemic, but it is a real problem. There have been bad teachers, and so uh, you do want to be careful. And I, the good news on that is episode 143 on this podcast, if you go back and listen to that, Scott Edelstein talks a lot about – he wrote a book on this very problem and talks a lot about how to um, evaluate teachers through this light. On the on the issue of payment, this is in, in – so, some teachers have a set – Payment, so it's not complicated. Uh, but in the in in the school in which I've been trained, they work on what's called a Dana system, D A N A, uh, which is basically means generosity. 
where you sort of give what you can afford, give what you want, uh, which can be very confusing. And so what I would recommend is a really direct conversation with the teacher and say, generally speaking, what do you get for an hour of your time? If the teacher is uncomfortable answering that, then I would just go with your gut. Think about what you pay, you know, your uh, for a workout or if you see a shrink and use that as a benchmark. And then also think about what can you afford? None of these teachers want you to spend more money than you can afford. The reason why they operate on this, uh, one of the reasons why they operate on this Donna model is they're not out to make tons of money and they don't want to set a bar financially that's hard for people to vault over. So I, it, it does, it's going to require a little introspection on your part, but, and I recognize that it's awkward, but it's absolutely surmountable. So yeah, I, I apologize, Belinda, that there isn't some clear system out there. Uh, this is something that I've put some thought into. We at the company think a lot about. Certainly when we're evaluating teachers for the 10% Happier app, we you know, ask a lot of hard questions and think a lot uh, about a lot of various factors. But for those of you out there who are newer to the practice and may not live in an area where there's a teacher, I recognize this is complicated, which is why one of, and I know this is a self-serving point, but this is one of the reasons why I think apps are great and not just our app. There are lots of great apps out there, including Headspace and Sam Sam Harris's Waking Up course. So uh, apps are great, but uh, having a one-on-one relationship with a teacher is also phenomenal. In my case, with Joseph Goldstein, it's made a huge difference. So best of luck to you. I wish I had an easier answer, but hopefully those are some useful tools. I want to thank everybody for tuning in yet again. We really, uh, all of the, the whole team, we really appreciate the fact that you come back every week. It means a lot to us. If you like what we do, and I know we say this all the time, but it, it, there's a reason why we say it because it makes a big difference. Subscribe to the show. Rate us. Give us a rating. I like five stars, but you know it's up to you. Tell your friends about it. Post on social media. All of that stuff makes a huge difference because the more listeners we get, the uh, stronger a case we can make to continue doing this. Also, if you want to suggest topics you want us to cover or guests you want us to have on, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. We've gotten some good ideas through there. A lot of ideas that I haven't yet followed through on, but we have a long, long list of future guests. I also really want to thank the people who are involved in producing this podcast. Samuel Johns, Ryan Kessler, and the rest of the folks at ABC News who've done a lot to make this possible. I think it's worth, of course, shouting out again, Tiffany, who uh, does a lot of audio work on the show, who just had a baby. Huge congratulations again to her uh, and her family. We have a ton of other podcasts here at ABC News, including a new one called The Dropout, which is utterly fascinating. And it comes from Rebecca Jarvis, a colleague of mine here at ABC News, and it's about the Theranos scandal. I recommend you check that out. That's all we got for you this week. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. 
I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.